Wonderful. Good to see you here this morning. So uh, we are kicking off a brand new series here at Connect called Ideal Family. And over the next four weeks, I want to um, take you with me through the Bible. We're going to look for some verses here, and we're really going to unpack this idea of what an ideal family can and should look like. And uh, so this morning is going to kind of be the introduction. So uh, I, I want to apologize up front because I'm fearful that some of you may leave this morning with more questions than answers. But, uh, but really, I want to just kind of introduce the whole idea of the series this morning. And then next week, we're going to look more at the dynamics of specific family members, you know, husbands and wives and fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, this kind of thing. So, so we'll look more at what the Bible teaches about those family dynamics next week. Then the following week on week three, I'm really excited because I have a couple of friends uh, who live here in town, Scott and Amy Baird, and they're wonderful people. They're on staff at a church, but they're also counselors, Christian counselors, and they work a lot with married couples and families. And they've agreed to come in and speak for me in three weeks' time and just talk about the whole subject of conflict and resolution. And I think we're going to find that really helpful that morning as families in what they teach from their biblical perspective. And then week four, you're going to want to come back because I'm going to be talking about that one person in the family that normally is probably the source of most of the problems. That one person, everyone's got them, uh, and if you looked in your family, you'd find it's that one person that really, if you dial right down to figure out what's causing all these problems in this family, who is that one person? It's you. Okay, we're going to talk about that and what role we play in our families and how just maybe changing our mindset, our attitudes can change the whole dynamic of our families. And some of you were like really excited there because you were already thinking, I know who he's talking about. It's my mother. It's my mother-in-law. He's preaching. No, it's you. So, uh, so come back in uh, three weeks. Come back for all of them. It's going to be a, a really good series, I think. So. so this morning, as we kind of dive into this introduction, is there really such a thing as an ideal family? Well, let me just uh, show you a picture here and maybe give you a little example. Right there, see, uh, ideal family, those are my children. That's Ben, Will, and Emma. Now, unfortunately, there's too many of you in here whose children go to school with my kids or you've seen them running around there in the foyer to know that really to, to put them as the, the poster child of the ideal family may be stretching the truth just a little bit. But isn't it true, and I know all of you have got pictures like this on your phones and on your screensavers and on your mantelpieces, and you look at them and they're like, what a wonderful family. But what we don't see in this picture is everything that led up to that picture. Just like the video that we watched just at the very beginning there. And I know you as families have had those. And this picture was probably number 76 on the roll that started out on number one. And finally, we got there. Finally, Ben smiled at the same time as Will. Emma stopped crying. Will stopped misbehaving. Whatever it was happening leading up to those pictures, we finally got that snapshot. And there is the ideal family. And if it were just up to pictures, every one of us would be an ideal family. If we looked through our photo albums, every one of us would appear to be the ideal family. Well, actually, I say every one of us. That's not entirely true, because sometimes a picture doesn't portray the image of an ideal family. There's, there's this family right here, for example. I'm, I'm not sure about that. They're obviously a, a, a fan of Star Trek there, and let's just all dress up together as, as Star Trek characters. That's, that's wonderful. Okay, how about this family right here? Awesome! <laughs> some of you are laughing. I've seen your high school yearbook pictures, so you better be quiet, because we have some pictures of some of you looking not too different than uh, those 80s and 90s rock stars. Maybe not the kids, but uh, how about this family? All right! 
Let, let me give you a word of warning here in case you go to a professional photographer to have a portrait taken. Just because he's a, a professional, you don't have to do every pose he suggests. Okay? I think years later, this family probably thought, we probably shouldn't have done that one. Just looks kind of odd. Okay, how about this family right here? Now, let, some of you got there already. Let me explain what led up to this picture. Honey, we've got five kids, and we've got five windows in the living room. Let's get a picture of all five of them stood in front of the windows. But, sweetheart, Junior can't stand yet. That's all right. I've got an idea. Bring me some duct tape. Just see that? That poor child is laying on a therapist's couch somewhere now, re- replaying that whole incident to, uh, to, the, to the person. How about this family? It doesn't just happen recently. Go back in history. Look at that family right there. It's like a commercial for AT&T. They're, uh... The sad thing about that particular family is they actually had one other son. He was slightly taller than his mother, so he was never allowed to be in any family pictures whatsoever. They removed him. I'm kidding. I made that up. But, uh... but just some odd-looking families. Now, what about this family? Maybe you recognize this family right here. You recognize them? That, that's Mr. Stock. And that's Mrs. Stock, and that's their two children, Jimmy and Jenny Stock, and their little puppy there jumping around, because that is the Stock family. Now, you may not know, but a a stock image is what advertisers and marketers and magazine people and commercial people, they, they look for pictures like this, because when they want to sell a product, they want a picture of the ideal family. And there they are. There's a stock picture of an ideal family. But I have a problem with that particular picture, because when I see that in a magazine and it's saying, hey, if you buy this product or if you drive this car, you'll be as happy as this family. What if my family doesn't look like that? What if I come from a different looking family? And as I look out here this morning at Connect, I happen to know many of you here this morning, and we've got a very diverse group of families here this morning. And not all of them look like this, but they're still fantastic families. Let me give you an example. I've not told any of these families their pictures are coming up, so they're going to be thrilled here this morning. But this is the first one. These are the Menson family. I love these people. They're a part of Connect. And right now, I think out of all eight of them, there's probably only one in the room, one or two maybe. And and she's working. She's she's running the lights right now, Jessica. Her mum and dad are helping out with the kids' area. Uh, Her son helps with the kids' church out there. But that's a big family. There's eight people in that family, and they all come along, and they're all involved. They're brilliant. I love them. Okay, how about these two right here? Mr. and Mrs. Dave and Sherry Mudd. And uh, I think they might be in here. I'm not sure. But these two, wonderful family. They serve so well here at Connect Church. You probably got a cup of coffee off of Sherry this morning. You may be sat in a chair. But at 7 o'clock this morning, Dave came and helped to set out because they work hard. They've been involved in churches like this before that have involved setting up and tearing down each week. So they come with this great work spirit and this great attitude. And that family looks a little bit different. But you know what? Let's take a look at the next picture. They're part of a huge family. So this is their extended family. They have three sons and daughters. Uh, well, three, yeah, three children, two, two daughters, one son. And uh, two of their kids are a part of Connect Church. And eight out of their 12 grandkids are a part of Connect Church. So we love this family. Okay, let's look at this last family right here. The Martins, Blake and DJ. Now, you may know Blake and DJ. They're a great couple. Now, you can see here, they have six kids, but not all those children are theirs, okay? They, they foster and they've adopted. So they have two biological children and then four that they have fostered or adopted. 
And they're a great family. They really feel that God has called them to, to show love to families and to children that maybe have come from difficult situations. But all three of those families and every other family that I could go through this morning, they all look so different than that stock family. And the truth is this morning that none of us should look at other families and say, oh, well, we don't look like that, so maybe we're not dot, dot, dot. It's not the way we look as a family that makes us family. Because this morning, I know that in this room, we have blended families. We have more traditional families. Some of you here this morning may be on a second marriage. Some may be on a third marriage. Some of you here this morning are raising your own kids. Others of you are involved in raising someone else's kids. Some have adopted or fostered children. So with all that diversity here this morning, is there anything as families that we have in common? Well, there is one thing that we all have in common here this morning. And that is no matter where you find yourself, you can pick your friends, but you can't pick your family. The family that you're in right now, that's the family you've been given. And do you remember that time, for many of us, it was kind of in middle school where we went through that period of our lives where we're like, man, my friend's family is much cooler. I wish I was part of that. My friend's dad lets him go to bed whenever he wants. I want to be that family. My friend's mum lets him play his iPod all the time. Well, we wouldn't have said that when we were kids. Well, whatever it was, our, our Game Boy or our Nintendo, whatever, you know. And, and my dad says, I have to switch it off. And, and we went through that, that time of saying, man, I want to be in that family because that family's better. Because the family that we find ourselves is is probably one of the most complex relationships that we'll ever be in. And you know what's interesting is, as I was preparing for this series and I turned to the Bible, I discovered that when it comes to family, there's not really a good, clear example to be found in the Bible. In fact, if I'm honest, there's probably more examples of bad families in the Bible than there are good families. And we can learn just as much from them as we can from the good. Did you know that the first recorded murder in the Bible, way back in the beginning, happened between two brothers, Cain and Abel? The first civil war in Israel's history was between a father and a son. It was King David and his son Absalom. This is a family, a biblical family, and a kingdom has gone to war because of their disagreements. Even the New Testament, we discover that Jesus' parents, they left him at the temple. Do you remember that story? They, they, they were a day into a journey when they were like, hey, where's 12-year-old Jesus? I thought, you, I thought you were watching him. I mean, that's not a great example of family. We see all these examples through the Bible. And with the exception of the odds, two or three, there's a lot of bad examples of, of family. However, as I studied, I found that, especially in the New Testament, Jesus comes and starts to prepare this teaching And then Paul, who was one of the key writers in the New Testament part of the Bible, he takes this on and and spreads the message more and spreads it more that there are values to be had in a family. And Jesus, he introduces this radical new way of looking at the world and in family. And in just a minute, we're going to read some of those key verses that you can find in the New Testament on family. But before we do, I really want you to understand the context in which these verses were written. Because some of you may be amazed that the church and Christianity has has survived for 2,000 years. I mean, that's just incredible that the church has grown the way it has. And we talked a little bit about that last week. But you'll be even more amazed this morning when you find out how well established the church has become when you discover the kind of culture in which it was to begin and the kind of message that Paul was sharing, Jesus' message, in that particular culture. You see, Paul was teaching in a Greek and Roman society. 
So a lot of the teaching in the New Testament was completely foreign to that culture. You see, back then it was a very male-dominated society. You had the, the man was a very patriarchal figure. And children and women, they didn't really count for much in that time. And yet here was Paul reflecting the love that Jesus had shown for men and for women and for children. The fact that Jesus died for all of them. Every one of them was equal. They'd all fallen short. They all needed Jesus' grace. His message was that at the foot of the cross, the ground was level. All were equal. Do you remember Jesus um, surprised the crowd when he said, Hey, listen, let those children come. They're important. I want them to hear what I'm talking about. The crowd, his disciples, they were pushing the children away. They were saying, we don't want children apart. This Jesus says, no. Children have value. And Paul was bringing this, this revolutionary teaching because even women at that time, they would be looked at as more of a possession than a relationship. You know, as I studied for this particular series, I found that women in the New Testament, they really didn't fare well at all. They were, they were just slightly, in, in the view of that culture, they were just slightly more valuable than cattle. That was the view that, that man had in New Testament times. It was like a possession. So, so Paul comes and introduces this teaching on family and says, listen, I'm going to turn your world upside down. And you may think this morning, well, why are you telling me this? Because it's so important that we understand this. Because as we go to look at some of these verses in just a second, for many of us, they'll make sense. But they'll make sense because we live in a society here in the Western world, in the United States, that's built on Christian values. And because of that, women have rights and children have rights here that aren't the same throughout the world. In fact, if you look at other cultures where Christianity isn't the basis, you see on the news and on TV women fighting for their rights and and different things taking place in the world because this is a value that goes right back to the New Testament and what the Bible had to teach about. And Paul was teaching this revolutionary teaching. So with all of that in mind, let's now jump into what Paul had to say about family, bearing in mind the people of the time that he was speaking to. So the first verse is in a letter that he wrote to a church in Ephesus. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And all the parents here were saying, Amen. Print that off. Let's get that put on the bedroom door of my kids right now. My kids need to be in here right now hearing this message. And, and Paul says, listen, children, obey your parents. The second one can be found in a book called Colossians. This was a letter that Paul wrote to a, a church in Colossia. And uh, in Colossians 3, verse 18, he says, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord." That's interesting because a lot of people know that verse. Unfortunately, lots know it because their husbands have quoted it to them on several occasions. Hey, wife, it says it here in the Bible, you know, and, and we just know that verse, and that verse is taken very often out of context. So we're going to talk a lot more about that next week, but just so I don't lose you, we are going to get to that. So uh, stay with me here. Because the very next verse, there's some instruction for the husbands. In Colossians 3.19, it says, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Why would he say this? Because in that culture, men were harsh with their property. And their, whether it was their animals or their whatever it was, they were harsh. And Paul was saying, listen, no. It's changing. Everything has to change. Jesus has changed the way that we look at the world. 
That's over. As a Christian man, it's now important how you treat your wife. It elevated the status of women in that culture. He goes on to give some instruction to us as parents. He says, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Or do not aggravate, that could mean. Dads, watch what you say. This is huge for me. I'm constantly trying to work with Ben and Will and Emma and, and instruct them and guide them and lead them and raise them as children. But sometimes I find that my words have so much power. And sometimes I can say something to Ben and I'm right in what I say, but I see that look in his eye because the way in which I said it wasn't the right way to say it. And it's like a part of him just kind of broken. I see that in his eyes. And I don't want to be a parent that aggravates his child and causes him to become discouraged. And then even Peter, the disciple who walked with Jesus, he wrote about, a, he wrote about family based on what he'd learned from Jesus. In 1 Peter 3 verse 7, he says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and heirs with you. That's important. Heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Again, what Peter is saying here is, listen, I know that you men that are reading this letter right now, you're thinking, my wife? The wife that I didn't even get to choose? The wife that my parents chose for me? And you're saying I've got to love her and treat her with respect? Yes. Because like you, she is a child of God. She too is an heir. So Paul and Peter are bringing about this teaching of Jesus that's radical in the New Testament. It's changing the way that culture and that society look at family. And it's so important that we understand that because we take that for granted because we live here in 2,000 years of of Christian teaching and in this this wonderful Western culture where some of this is kind of common sense to us. But back in Bible times, this this was revolutionary stuff. And the gospel was changing the way people looked at the world. So, so basically, to summarize those, those verses, it says, Husbands, love your wives and be considerate. Wives, submit to your husbands. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't irritate your children. There you go. That's it. We, we've covered it all. So you don't even need to come now for the next three weeks. Those are the, that's the New Testament teaching right there on family. But, but there, is, there is some more. So do come back because we're, we're definitely going to dig deeper into those phrases. But here's what I want to just emphasize this morning in the, the short time I've got at the outset of this series. And it's what I want us to use as our foundation. Because when we look at those four sentences... Love your wives, submit to your husbands, obey your parents. Already we're here thinking, uh oh. <laughs> yeah, maybe we aren't the ideal family. Because I can see, even in my family, that we've missed that mark. If that's what an ideal family looks like, then we have fallen short. And sadly, we live in a, in a, in a world today where it seems too difficult to, to aim for ideals. So we, we just lower the bar. We say there's no way we can live to that standard, so let's just make it easier. Let's just lower the standard here and let's be real here, like we could ever do that. And when it comes to family and how am I as a dad or a husband or how am I as a wife or how am I as a child here this morning, because we're all part of a family in some way, there's the ideal and then there's real. And then there's this gap, this gap between ideal and real. And because ideal is impossible to attain, we think, well, let's just lower it. But Jesus won't allow the bar to be lowered. Jesus says, no, I'm setting the bar high. 
And this is the, you're going to hear me say this sentence two or three times this morning because I really want us to grasp it at the outset of this series. Here is the, the, the foundation of this idea of what an ideal family can and should look like. Jesus taught and pointed towards an ideal, yet he refused to condemn those who fell short. This is amazing teaching. This is the, the gospel. This is the center of what Jesus taught. He came and said, listen, I'm going I'm to set the bar high, but I'm going to forgive those that don't reach it. This is true of Jesus in all areas, not just family. He created this tension in every area of his teaching. Because the people back then, they were used to rules. They were used to the law. The, uh, the Old Testament calls it the law. It was Moses and the Ten Commandments and then the, the law that came out of that. And they wanted hard and fast rules. So they knew, I've either broken it or I haven't broken it. I want a black and white rule that I can follow. And then Jesus comes and he raises the standards. He comes out with phrases like, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Or you've heard it said this, well, I tell you this. Go the extra mile, turn the other cheek. And he's constantly raising the standards. He's setting that ideal. A great example of this is when Jesus was teaching on adultery. In the Old Testament, Moses had made it clear that if you sleep with another person other than your wife, you've committed what the Bible calls adultery. Well, Jesus came along, and in a, in a message where he's teaching to a crowd, he says, hey, you know what? Even if you look at another man's wife with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. And along comes Jesus, and he says, no, I'm going to raise the bar even higher. And as soon as he said that, I think probably all the guys in the crowd were like, oh, man. And everyone is thinking, well, if he's looking at my heart and not just my actions, then I'm in trouble here. And they probably thought, well, Jesus, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of this ideal that you're setting. What are you going to do? He says, you know what? I'm going to forgive you. I know that you can't be perfect. I know you can't live to that standard. Now, I'm not going to lower that standard. And I'm actually going to give my life. We sang about that earlier. I'm going to give my life so that you can know forgiveness. But I won't lower what I believe is the standard of idealism. So Jesus comes along and the standard gets higher, but the grace gets deeper. Because Jesus was the embodiment of truth and grace. And we can find both in him. He taught and pointed toward an ideal, yet he refused to condemn those that fell short. He created this tension when he came that still exists today, especially in the context of family. Why? Because of the alternative. The alternative is that we accept that ideal is impossible, so we redefine ideal. We say, well, no one can live to that standard. Dave, you've left some things here from the Bible, and what family could ever follow through on that? And we lower the sights. We say ideal is too high. Why even try? And we settle for second best. And I want to touch on one area in the context of family, just in this introductory week, and, and please stay with me as I go through this, because uh, it's, it's, it's quite a, a touchy subject, it's quite a deep subject, and Jesus teaches really well on it, and I'm going to try and explain what he's teaching here. But don't forget as I go through the idea that Jesus has this idea, but he has this wonderful grace, this love that never, ever fails. And the two go hand in hand together. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, it says that some Pharisees came to test him, now, if you're familiar with the, the Bible and the New Testament, that's kind of what they did. They, just, they were always looking for ways to trap Jesus in his words because they refused to believe that he could be the Son of God. So they came and said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? 
So what they're asking is, is it lawful? Because it says in the law of Moses that a man can divorce. So we want to know, Jesus, because you've been teaching this kind of radical teaching here. What do you think about that? Because Moses said it was okay. What do you think about it? Because in that day, um, divorce was quite common. And for a man in that culture, it was very easy for him to divorce his wife. If he wasn't happy, it was literally, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. He would say that three times and the marriage was over. In that culture, that's how easy it was for a man. So women were mistreated and women were, um, they didn't have those same rights. And Jesus came and he was turning that teaching upside down. So they're saying, well, hang on, Jesus. Moses said it was okay. But we've heard that you're teaching a little bit different. So Jesus responds with this. Haven't you read, and this is a great thing to say to the Pharisees, because that's all they do, is they read. They just read the law, letter by letter, page by page. And Jesus is saying, hey, you should know this. Haven't you read that at the beginning, and they're probably like, no, no, Jesus, we don't want to go back to the beginning. We want to know now. What do you think now? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. I need to take you back to the beginning. I need to take you back to the way God created this world, when things were perfect, when they were ideal, when things were just the way they were meant to be. And here Jesus introduces that tension because he takes them to a place before the Bible says sin entered the world, a place that God created perfect. And Jesus knew and the crowd knew at that time that that place didn't exist anymore, but he still said, no, I need to take you back to what God meant it to be in the first place, how God created it originally. And that tension is created. He says, at the beginning, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And we've heard that phrase said before in marriages. He takes us all the way back to the Garden of Eden and says, listen, you don't even know what you're talking about because you don't even understand what marriage is. God made these two people one. And your question now, you're trying to ask, how do I un-one what God made one? It just doesn't work. So at this point, the Pharisees are starting to get a little bit confused because they're like, whoa, what are you talking about here? That's not the question we're asking. But Jesus is saying, listen, you're looking at the real here. I'm taking you back to the ideal I want you to understand the way God created things in the very first place. Now, Jesus understands the idea of why divorce was introduced into the Mosaic law. He understands that people get divorced. He understands that back then it was a way to protect women. When, when, when God allowed Moses to bring in this, this, these rules for divorce, it's because back then, basically, men were divorcing their wives, but they weren't. So they were treating them as if they were divorced. They were getting no rights. They were getting no help from the men. But because the Bible, you know, because the law wouldn't allow them to divorce, they just treated them like divorced women, but they wouldn't look after them or help them. So they, they introduced it into the law for the, for the needs of the women. And Jesus understands this. So when they say to him, why then did God, did Moses command that a man gives his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? He replied, no, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But, and this is the thing, it was not this way from the beginning. And this is where I want to go to in this series of ideal family is the way from the beginning, the way God created us to be, the way God intended it to be from the beginning. Now, I realize this morning that for some of us, it's, it's going to be hard to hear just, just even the stuff that I've talked about so far. In fact, I'm, I'm sure that when I even started to talk about divorce, there were some here that immediately started to clench up because of where you find yourselves this morning. 
I know that some of you here this morning, you may be on a second marriage or a third marriage. Some may be in your first marriage, but things are rough. You feel like you're on the brink of divorce yourself. And please, please, as I talk about this subject, don't miss the depth of the truth of what I'm trying to say here is that Jesus taught and pointed towards an ideal, but he refused to condemn those who fell short. So this week, as I was preparing for this message, I was struggling with this whole idea, and I called a good friend of mine. Um, I've known him almost 20 years now. We worked together at a church, and uh, this guy, he was married to this girl, and uh, Casey and I both knew the pair of them, and they'd been married for about five years, and, and suddenly one day, he discovers that his wife has been having an affair. And sadly, the, the marriage breaks apart, she divorces him. He steps out of his work at the church. He steps out of ministry. And for a couple of years, he went through probably what was one of the darkest periods of his life. And then after a couple of years, he found himself uh, being drawn back into church world. And he was offered a position in ministry and he went back to work in the church. And after a couple of years of working back in this church, he actually met another young lady. And they got married and they've had four beautiful kids Casey and I are such good friends with him. And I was talking to him this week about this very subject. He said, Dave, it it is tough. He said, just recently, my eight-year-old daughter discovered that her mum wasn't my first wife. He said, that was a really hard conversation for me to have with my daughter. He was tearing up on the phone as he was telling me this story. He said, I know, know, Dave, that that seems like another life to me. It seems so far away, but it's still, the pain is there. And having that conversation with my daughter and having to explain to her what I'd been through, even though that wasn't my fault back then, it still affects me today. But he said, I'll tell you this, Dave. He said, even though God has blessed my life so much since then, even though I've seen his grace on a daily basis, even though I feel restored and forgiven and I'm in a great place now thanks to Jesus and his grace, even though that's all happens and I believe that God has got my best years ahead of me, I still have an ideal for my kids. I don't want them to go through that. And as I've talked to families that have been through divorce or relationship breakups, and every one of us this morning has been affected some way or another by that, I don't think I've ever come across a parent that would wish that for their own children. They say, no, I want the ideal for my children. But sometimes we don't set the ideal for ourselves because we don't think it's attainable. But God's saying, hey, listen, I want to keep the ideal in front of you all the time. I don't want you to lower the bar. I don't want you to settle. I don't want you to think, well, that's impossible, so I'm not going to try. And through this series of ideal family, it's going to be difficult, but I really think that we can discover what the Bible has to say for us as husbands and wives and parents and kids. And we can, set, we can look for that ideal that God has made clear in Scripture and we can strive towards it. And we won't set it aside and say, but that's impossible. I couldn't do that. We'll say, no, I'm still going to strive for the best because I know that God has set the ideal and he'll forgive me for the, if I don't reach that. His grace comes and forgives me. You know, in, um, in olden days, prior to compasses and that kind of thing, when... When sailors used to make journeys, they would, they, would, they would plot their course by the stars. They would look up and they would find the North Star, and if they were sailing north, they would head that way. If they were sailing um, east, they would you know, keep the North Star to the left, and they'd head that way. And That's how they guided their journeys, but not one of them ever expected to reach the North Star. 
That was their, their, their navigating point. That's what they were headed towards because they knew that whether it was a short journey or a long journey, that was going to take them to their ultimate destination. I believe that the Bible, and we're going to learn this over the next three weeks, has given us as parents and husbands and wives and children and whatever dynamic we find ourselves in our family, he's given us a North Star. He's given us some ideals in Scripture. And we've got to fight that tendency to say, well, I look around the world and I see this failure and this brokenness and, that, and we lower the bar. But God's saying, no, I want to challenge you to strive for what's ideal and I'm going to help you. And, and if, you've, if you've made a mistake, I'm still going to love you. And if you've messed up, I'm going to get you through that. But I'm still not going to lower what I feel should be the ideal. So I want to close out in prayer here this morning. I know that for the introductory message, we got kind of um, deep here, a little bit heavy. But I really, I, I honestly believe, and it's amazing, you know, just a little side note here. This wasn't in my notes. I, in, in getting ready to plant Connect Church, Casey and I, we've lived here in Washington for the last five years. And um, we, we were on staff at another church in Peoria, but we were really feeling that God was leading us to start this new ministry here in Washington. And a couple of times people would say, well, why do you, why do you think, think of starting a church? There's some great churches in Washington, and there are, but there are still people that don't have a church home, and we really want to reach those people. And then we would share that our desire was to reach, you know, people who are hurting and people who are broken and people who are in need. And they would say, in Washington? Like maybe in Peoria, in the inner city, but in Washington, they're doing fine. But you know what? We've lived here for five years and we've got great friends and great families and we know that just because Washington's a wonderful town to live in and the surrounding areas, if you're from Eureka or Morton or Metamora, whatever brings you here this morning, that below the surface there are families that are hurting. There are struggles going on in relationships and, and we're not perfect. I struggle teaching on this. I, if you could spend a week at my house... <laughs> You wouldn't listen to any teaching I'm giving. I'm going to keep pointing back to the Bible. I may give a few examples from my life every now and again, but it'll be more like, just don't do what I did this week, because it was totally wrong. But I'm going to keep pointing back to the Scripture, because I believe that God has given us this ideal that we can strive towards, and we can um, experience that in our families. Whatever the past has, whatever's happened in the past, from this point onwards, God has given us an ideal that we can strive to follow. Let's pray together. Father... Lord, I love families, Lord. I believe, God, that your, uh, your, your scriptures, they teach this, that family is a, just another way that people can experience you, Lord. God, I grew up as a Christian, Lord, and in my teenage years, my college years, my young adult years, I, I knew what it was to love you. But when I f fell in love with Casey and discovered what it was like to love someone and have them love you back, Lord, it changed the way I viewed your love for me. And then when I had my first child, Lord, again, just knowing what it's like as a father to love a son, it, it gave me a fresh revelation into uh, your love for me, Lord, and how much you love me. Even though I mess up, my kids mess up all the time, but I still love them so dearly and would do anything for any one of them and that's how much you love all of us and I think Lord that because the family is such a wonderful reflection of your love for us that the enemy likes to destroy families he likes to destroy the relationship between a mother and a son or destroy the relationship between a brother and a sister or a husband and a wife because ultimately it's destroying the beautiful picture of your love for us and Lord, I don't believe you want to come in and, and work with second best. I believe, God, that you want to say, no, here's the ideal that I want you to strive towards. 
And I know, I get it, I know that it's not going to be possible to be ideal, but you can guide towards that. And when you mess up, I'm going to extend my grace, I'm going to forgive you. So for all here this morning that are families, I pray, Lord, that they would experience what we sang in that song, the words of that song, that your love never, never, never fails. Bless us as we go about this week, Lord, and uh, we just pray, Lord, that this would sink into our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.